I'm Jeff Cohen. Getting into and going to medical school, a real challenge. Doing it in Israel while on the path to religious observance, even more challenging. But that's the story for our next guest, Jonathan Weiss. How did a secular Jew from Los Angeles find his way to medical school and Orthodox Judaism in Israel? Let's find out now. Jonathan, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Jeff, it's very nice to be here. Thank you very much for having me. So one little spoiler alert, I mentioned that you are a secular Jew in Los Angeles. So does that mean that's where your story begins? Yes, that's a good spoiler. Uh, my story does begin in Los Angeles, although my family's story starts before that. But I was born and raised in Los Angeles. So let's go into the time period before Los Angeles. Where are your ancestors, like grandparents, great-grandparents? Where does the story really begin? So on my father's side, the story starts in Austria, pre-World War One. great-grandfather. But uh, for three generations, grandfather and father, they lived in Kiev, in Ukraine. Uh, my mother's side, they also lived in Ukraine, in, in Odessa. And they immigrated to the United States before the fall of the Soviet Union in the early 80s. That was the culture that I grew up in, which is as a first-generation American Ukrainian. But at the time, just American-Russian, because there's no difference before the war. So what were some of the things your family was doing in the home once they came to Los Angeles? They have you, like, do you have siblings? Like, take us inside what your family life was like from a religious perspective in the early years. Yeah, so as I actually learned later on in my life, it's more of a typical story than I had thought it to be. But in the Soviet Union, because religion was not encouraged or allowed, my parents picked up whatever religious uh, practices and knowledge they brought with us when I was being raised, uh, when they came to the United States already. They weren't raised themselves practicing, but for one reason or another, which is uh, still amazing to me, they felt it important and relevant when they came to the United States to pick up whatever it is that they now had the opportunity to. So we had Shabbat candles, and they did that every Shabbat. My father does tefillin every single day. They call us the twice-a-year Jews, so Yom Kippur, Rosh Hashanah, we would go to the synagogue. Those were the only times that we went. We had Passover, but kind of figured it out on our own, not necessarily by any structure or uh, rules, but trying to pick up what we understood should be included within Passover, but not eating bread. I was raised with a very, very strong connection to Judaism, culturally, and our heritage. And the practices that we did do, we did them strongly with integrity, but not philosophically or religiously. And in terms of schooling, from the way you're describing things, you were in public school. Was there any kind of Hebrew school supplementing that that then led to a bar mitzvah for you? So I didn't go to Hebrew school. I did have a private tutor to learn Olivet, which, funny enough, without exception, anytime I come to Israel, inevitably the TSA will ask me, uh, question about my bar mitzvah teacher. I don't know why. <laughs> I, so I did have a tutor just for the bar mitzvah. But otherwise, yeah, public school, high school, I went to private school. It was Jewish, where there's a lot of students in my class who were Jewish, but it wasn't a Hebrew school. Other than uh, everyone being Jewish around me, there wasn't a formal study. And so as you're finishing up like the middle school, high school years, and you're starting to think about college, you're, you're past the bar mitzvah years, at that point in time, what role did you think that religion would play in your life? I knew that it would be very important as an aspect of identity from a historical standpoint, like from a familial historical perspective. 
our immigration story was really important to me. It, it was told like a legend. And the preservation of our Jewish roots was a really essential component of that story. And I felt very connected and very invested in that aspect of Judaism. But it never really occurred to me that there would be depth in its philosophy or in any of the ideas contained in Judaism. It seemed to me that it was an archaic time, it was an archaic philosophy, it's an archaic system that now exists in my life and in my worldview as a tradition I carry on, but on my own terms. Moving now into the college years, where did you go to school, what did you study, and what role is Judaism playing during that period of time? So in college, I went to the University of San Francisco, which is a Jesuit university, and there wasn't really much of a role of Judaism beyond, uh, I took a class in Jews, Jewish and Jewish expressions, which was an anthropology of the various ways that Judaism manifests across the world. And I took an Israeli-Palestinian conflict course, but otherwise, it didn't really play much of a role in my undergraduate years. And uh, yeah, at that time I was studying psychology and learning in biochemistry. I was pre-medical. I was an EMT at the time, which is a, like pre-paramedic. So I was more active in my education as a like burgeoning either medical professional or an academic. That was sort of the track I was going on. And I was always very invested and interested in philosophy and in academia generally, but it never crossed over into Jewish philosophy and theology. One of the things I want to mention to our listeners is that you and I met at a Shabbos meal in Israel with one of my chavrusas, and I'm not sure if we discussed this at the table, that one of the things I do on the board for the OU is act as the commission chair for the birthright trips. So given the period of time they were talking about late teens into early 20s, I have to ask you if you got a chance to go on one of those trips. Yes, actually, I can't believe I forgot that, that was one of the components of my undergraduate experience. I did go on Tagalit which was my second time going to Israel. To tell you the truth, I actually didn't want to go into Galit. I went on the trip because it, uh, I was signed up in that same summer to go to Zambia for a month-long social justice trip. And I uh, reasoned that if I went on to Galit, then it would pay for my ticket to get to that side of the world, which will make it financially easier to get to Zambia. But Baruch Hashem that that's how it played out because it was a life-changing trip to be on It was a phenomenal, phenomenal experience being able to see Israel. So you just said that you went to Israel twice. So just break down these two trips, what the reason was for the first trip and what that experience was like and what connection you felt compared to what you were just talking about the second time when the trip to Israel was then a connection to Zambia. The first time I went to Israel, I went with my parents. This was in high school, 11th grade. We toured from north to south with a tour guide who was older man who uh, served in all three wars, incredibly experienced, very knowledgeable, very passionate about the history of Israel. So we were in his van for two and a half weeks touring Israel, top to bottom, with my parents. That was my first exposure to Israel, of course, because that was my first uh, time being there. But I'll tell you, I mean, growing up at our dinner table, as I imagine it may be for many others, Israel was as much a part of our conversation around the dinner table as was America. It was a, like the white night that existed as our second home, even though we never visited. So that trip was somewhat instantiating 
in reality the actual place that I've only experienced in story up until that point. It felt like the culmination of uh, everything that had been discussed up until that point, if that makes sense. So this first trip to Israel connects you to the land, but it doesn't kickstart any desire to go deeper religiously. Am I hearing that correctly? Yes, absolutely. I were to break it down, I think the first trip would have cultivated the Zionistic aspect of the passion for Israel, but not the religious side. Fueling the love for Israel, but not the religious side. It was a completely secular trip in Tigli. It was only on the third time later when I would finally stay in Israel. That was the religious component. So we have these two trips to Israel, and you just referenced there's going to be a third a little bit later on. Let's go into the period of time between the second and third trip. You, you come back from the second trip, you graduate from University of San Francisco, and you mentioned you were pre-med. So what's happening at that point in your life? Uh, at that point, I was very fixated on career, like many, I guess, Americans, but I was really fixated on what to do next. I had all these doors open, and I never closed doors before. I never had to. I never had to make a choice early in my life before, where in having to select one path, I'll not select another. And that's what I was facing at the end of college. And I felt a little uninspired. I didn't really know what I wanted to do. What I ended up deciding to do and it was a game changer. One of my loves was academia and research. I worked in a research lab in undergraduate. I was interested in pursuing that more. There's something intoxicating about how it is that there's a field dedicated to knowing how to ask sophisticated questions and answering them and knowing something that nobody in the world knows. I just really felt uh, drawn towards it. And there's an academic who's one of my academic heroes who was leading a conference and I signed up and they accepted me and it was in Siena. So I ended up traveling at the, a few months after I graduated undergraduate to Siena for this neuroscience conference. And incidentally, also my friends were getting married in Spain a month later. And what I did in between after this conference and before the wedding, I went on the Camino Santiago, which is a pilgrimage across Spain uh, which follows the saint of St. James from the westernmost point of France to the easternmost point of Spain. And what I decided was, I don't know what I want to do with my life yet, but what I do know is in the week that I was with this conference, I've never been so inspired in my life before, just to be in the presence of someone who can think with such sophistication, articulation, and I want to be able to have that tool. I want to be able to emulate that. So what I decided on the Camino is that when I come back, I'm going to buy a one-way ticket to Boston. And one way or another, I'm going to make it into her lab, Rebecca Sachs' lab. Didn't know that I was showing up. There was no reason that she would accept me into the lab. I would just sort of like the, basically the Hollywood of Boston, where you uh, knock on doors until they let you in. And that's what I did. In the meantime, I was a bartender. And for months and months, I was trying to get into the lab. Didn't. It was uh, a frustrating time. It was difficult. Eventually, I did make it into a lab, and then I made it to a different lab. And then now we're caught up to just before the story of how I get to my third trip in Israel, which is a year before, in 2019. I just want to mention, you were talking about Camino de Santiago. I studied abroad in Madrid for six months when I was at the University of Pennsylvania. So I know all about that pilgrimage. It's, it's impressive and it's amazing that you did that. And I've heard a lot of people who go on that 
really get a lot of time to think and plan out their future and get inspired. And it's not surprising to me that you went for something big, like coming out of that to go to Boston and just try to make a dream come true while also doing the bartending on the side. Yeah. Incredible that you uh, know about it. It's amazing how many people I've learned after I went on the trip who do know about it. And if I could tell a funny story, I actually originally didn't intend to go on the Camino Santiago. My friends are very big hikers, very big campers. And I did this trip with them. And they told me, like, after your conference, meet us in this small town uh, on the border of France. And we're going to go hiking for four days. And I'm thinking, I never been to Barcelona before. Can we go there instead? Like, why are we wasting our time, like, walking for six days in the middle of nowhere? And then when I show up, they're like, oh, yeah, by the way, this, we're going to be hiking across the Pyrenees Mountains, and this is one of the most famous pilgrimages across the world, and people come from all, the, all over the world to do this. And it's like, oh, great, that would have been very nice to mention uh, to get me a little bit more excited about it, because I was very reluctant in the beginning to go. So thankfully, I was uh, willing to go with the flow but I was not excited to be doing that instead of going to Barcelona and seeing a new city. So it's funny how life works out that way. Let's now pick up the story when you were talking about a third trip to Israel. How did that come about? Why did you go on that trip? What were you hoping to get out of it? That starts just as 2019 is coming in. I'm leaving a position that was really quite horrible and clarifying at the same time that I wasn't going in the direction that I should be. And I decided then to start applying to medical school. So it's about a year-long run to do this. You have to study for the entrance exam. From there, I have to prepare your written materials. And after I finished my exam, I did two things simultaneously. One, I, I saw a post on either Facebook or Instagram, I don't remember which one it was, where they advertised it as like a birth rate 2.0, free trip to Israel over New Year's, come this Sunday, we'll discuss the details. So I did. What they had explained is that every Sunday for four hours, you are required to come to these classes, which is basic education in Jewish philosophy, theology, whatever. And if you attend enough of these lessons, then you'll qualify for this trip and we'll take you to Israel for a 10-day trip. And for me, I was thinking, that's great. I mean, I've free education and I get to go on a trip because I'm just writing these applications all day anyways. This sounds great. At the same time, within the same week, as I found this Instagram post, I got connected with an educational therapist who was looking for a partner to tutor some of his students. And it turned out that one of his students uh, that he wanted me to tutor was inside of the yeshiva. So it was an interesting coalescence where the Instagram post New Year's trip two months down the line and this tutor position that I just picked up on across the two months leading up to this trip would blend together because the Jewish community that I was being introduced to through this Jewish group bringing us to Israel was the same community as the student who I was tutoring. So it's called LAJ. I'll I'll name it by name. They're funded by a big parent organization, Ulami. So in LAJ, they have one of the requirements that you do two to three Shabbatons, which is just staying overnight for a Shabbat at somebody's house, and they organize this. That's the first time I've heard of this kind of a concept before. Why would a stranger let you into their house? I felt very suspicious 
who would let strangers sleep inside their bed for no reason. And I did this two or three times leading up to the trip. And what was funny is that in one of the Shabbatons that I stayed at was at the same group of students who I tutored in a, with this educational therapist. So there's this sort of coalescence going on. So it continues like this up until the trip begins. So three days before the flight to Israel, I get a phone call from a position that I applied to months and like probably nine months ago. And I mean, after leaving a pos the position that I said earlier that I ultimately guided me towards medical school, there is somewhat of a feeling of not having closure or having completely a been satisfied with how I left things. I was in an academic position as a research coordinator, and at the time I was on the academic path. So for a few months I had applied to academic positions until I realized it doesn't make sense because I don't want to be going down this road anymore. I don't know why I'm applying. This is really just for personal catharsis. I applied to a couple places, and one of the places that I applied to reached out to me three days before my flight. And it was from somebody who I met in Boston through the group of friends that I met while I was there. And she said that, uh, sorry it took so long for us to see your application, but we have a position that's remote and flexible. It's a research position and curriculum design. Are you still interested? And I said, yeah, that sounds wonderful. I'll let you know when I'm back in Los Angeles and I'd be happy to start working. So I put that away in the back of my head. Three days go by, I get on the flight, I fly to Israel and begin the trip with LAJ. The trip is fun, very Tiglit-esque, but the uh, structure of the trip is much more oriented towards introducing Israel now in the lens of, you know, religious lens. But there were a few moments, there's a few really key things that the rabbi who was leading the group said that resonated deeply. And he and I, throughout the trip, had been arguing viciously. He loved that I was so passionate about it. But man, we were at odds. I just didn't agree with almost everything he was saying. There was a few things that he said that really resonated. He had said that if you are from the Soviet Union, your background's from the Soviet Union, somebody within four generations of you had to have been Orthodox, otherwise you would not know that you're Jewish. And I said, what are you talking about? That's not true. I know my family history very well. Nobody in my family is Orthodox. And he just looks me dead in the eye. I said, call your parents. I bet you anything, there's at least one. I call my parents that night, and what do you know? Even sweet, both sides of the family, we have Orthodox ancestry. And he tells me later, in our records, and according to the Rambam, it's about 80 generations from Moshe to us. So 80 minus 4, because nobody's converted to Judaism before now. So odds are, for 76 generations, you were Orthodox. It's only the fourth four generations in the Soviet Union that is the odd one out. For whatever reason, it's a, just an idea that really resonated strongly with me. People can resonate with different things that I think attract them within uh, Yiddishkeit Judaism. That one was it for me. Something about that timeline, something about the fact that uh, the four generations that I know are the exception to the 76 of the ones that led up to my family was powerful. Since then, it was almost like a taste, like some sort of undercurrent throughout the trip of a sense of importance, of understanding Judaism, which had been lost in, in my perspective. The four generations taken by Soviets.
The second important event that occurred, three days before the flight, again, three days, three days before the flight, we're in the old city of Jerusalem, and I recognize for some reason a building that we're approaching. It's uncanny, and I don't know why I know it. And I remember that the reason I know it is because second time I was in Israel, after birthright, before Zambia, I was lost in the old city, and somebody brought me there and took me to a classroom. I almost forgot about that entire event, but uh, the concluding words when I was there by a rabbi that was speaking to me said, you know, maybe one day you'll be back here. And 10 years later, there I was. And the same rabbi that had said that to me was introduced to us by the rabbi that brought all of us back to Israel. And that floored me. And at that point, I started thinking about staying. I started thinking to myself, maybe, I mean, it's possible. I completed all of my applications. There's nothing really keeping me, drawing me back to Los Angeles. So I could stay in yeshiva, learn a little bit more. But I have all these students waiting for me back home. Josh, who was the educational therapist who I connected with, he's been so great to me. I can't just abandon the students. I'll give him a call, see what he thinks. Maybe he'll give me two more weeks that I can stay in yeshiva. So I give him a call the day before the flight, and I call him and I ask, what would you think if I were to stay another week or two weeks in Israel, a yeshiva? And he asks me, what's yeshiva? And I say, yeshiva Torah, why do you know it? He says, know it? I was there for four years. You have to stay. Please stay. And he was at that point convincing me to stay. All your students will be here when you come back. If they graduate, I'll give you new students. Like, please give me the opportunity of the mitzvah to have you stay there. And I realized that I have the job that just was offered to me three days prior to my flight so I could support myself while I was there. And then I said, okay, let's do it. And I canceled my ticket back. I stayed for three weeks, then extended another month, and then COVID hit, and the rest was history. I stayed in the old city did my first year of medical school in the yeshiva. And it's very difficult to not be religious when you're in the old city when the entire country's locked down and you're one of the few people who are in the old city next to the hotel. How did you go from someone who was curious about Judaism to the point that you wanted to study it and stay in Israel, you know, go to Aish? I can understand all of that. How does that interest and curiosity blossom into, I actually want to live as an Orthodox Jew, and even one step further, my plans for medical school in the United States are going to change, and I'm going to do it here in Israel. How did you make that jump from one thought to the other? I have to believe there were some many steps in between. To tell you the truth, I'm also somewhat asking myself that question every so often. In the beginning, when I decided to stay in yeshiva, it was entirely out of, let's say, a dissociated, at a distance interest, like an anthropologist or a sociologist. I was interested in learning what uh, they believe in, which is in principle part of my identity, but not something that I myself would. I'm not the kind of person who believes in God. Why would I believe in the fantasy? That kind of a thing. And I think that was the big jump between the two and a half weeks and the month that I extended afterwards is by the first two and a half weeks, which I expected to be able to get my answers, I was very rudely braced with a wave of humility. What I thought I understood or figured out or had down wasn't even the beginning. That there's a lot more depth to be understood within Judaism. And it was a process. I 
have to tell you that um, most of my time in yeshiva was debating and to tell you the truth even still now to this day there is a component of me that um, is on the questioning side it wasn't such a radical shift for me it was a it was a process over a year and a half two years so really just it's maybe not as interesting of an answer but it really was just engaging the questions and step by step getting a little bit more of a sense of an appreciation for what is the difference in knowledge or what is the authentic academic knowledge and capturing of life of something that's real that exists that Judaism actually provides. And the real switch, I actually I can tell you one moment that was what a, somewhat of a game changer. When I was talking to one of the rabbis, he said this as a statement, for you, academia and science is the ultimate standard. Like that's the standard to which you apply like a rigor of your litmus test. That's your litmus test. So why don't you have the decency and respect to at least attempt applying that standard to Judaism and see how it pans out and stop assuming that it doesn't have answers. As soon as I started doing that, that's I think when things started coming into place. Because then it wasn't just an assumption, a disrespectful assumption that I'm an anthropologist looking at the bizarre, barbaric, um, archaic system that, I, that doesn't apply to me and actually started taking seriously that maybe that there's something here, which any uh, Balshuva probably will tell you that it becomes a personal experience of how do you navigate new knowledge and new terrain and how do you relate to this. So that became a process over time. But that was the moment when I had respect. And there must have been conversations with your parents, who were the ones who got you interested in Israel, both from all the conversations you were having at the dinner table, but also taking you there when you were in high school, where they're probably initially really happy that you're taking such an interest in Israel, and maybe even happy that you're going to yeshiva to learn even more about Judaism. But now it crosses over into wanting to live as an Orthodox Jew. So what is that conversation like, and how does that possibly impact your relationship with your parents? The... Call that I made after I called Josh, the tutor, who reassured me that I should stay in yeshiva. The next call was my mom. And I don't think I've ever seen, or in this case, heard my mom as angry with me as in that conversation. And I've given her reason to be angry with me throughout my life. They're afraid. And in my opinion, reasonably so. There's a vision of what an orthodox person is, looks like, behaves. It's very foreign. It's very scary. You don't really know how your kid's going to end up on the other side of it. Also, there's the aspect of, are you joining a cult? There's just rumors of what it is to be orthodox. So they're afraid. But over time, seeing that I was not just fulfilled and more sensitive, I think, I, I hope that they would say that this is true, I think most importantly, seeing that I didn't really change in the fundamental sense of it, that each time that they saw me, there might have been different behaviors, and I kept keep Shabbat, and I, you know, eating with me is annoying because I have kosher restrictions. But those are the surface pieces that, uh, on the whole, our relationship hasn't changed. If anything, it deepened. I think it just required time, and I think that that was important. Couldn't be rushed. It can't be rushed. And that was at least our process, mine and my parents. Thank God my friends were very supportive. I don't think I had as much concern from my friends. 
So what's the plan now? You talked about going to medical school. Given your background, I got to believe you're in a place where you're doing it in English. It's hard enough to learn Hebrew, but if you're going to overlay having to learn medical terms in Hebrew, I would think that would be nearly impossible as a Balchuva. So what kind of program are you in? And what's your plan once you get that degree? Are you looking to stay in Israel and practice there? Are you thinking you're going to come back to the United States? What What are your hopes and dreams as, the, as this part of your life unfolds? Yeah, so I'm in an American medical program in Israel. It's actually going to be the last year that these programs are offered because they're, they've been discontinued as of the year before me, but for the past 30 years. They essentially function as international medical graduate programs that are American accredited. And I'll be going back to the United States for residency. And then after residency, there'll be a choice of whether or not I come back to Israel or stay in the United States. And that's the plan as of now. Have you thought about the idea of the fact that you've become Orthodox, how you're in this kind of, for lack of a better word, bubble where it's probably somewhat easy to keep Shabbos, eat kosher, be around like-minded people, you're in the Holy Land, like all of it is probably simpler compared to if you now choose to go back and you'd have to think about where could you live that you wouldn't lose all the amazing momentum that you've built from your time in Israel. Yes, <laughs> I think about it a lot. Thankfully, I won't have to really make that choice for another year and a half. I'm hoping that uh, I'll have maybe a little bit more clarity in that year and a half. But to tell you the truth, I don't have an answer to that question, which is so important. I had a conversation with a mentor a few weeks back, and they asked, they were just going through career planning, residency matching, all the, sort of the details of what it looks like in the five-year plan. And... We looked, looked at a spreadsheet and they broke down. So you're, they're saying this to me. So you want to live in a Jewish community. So this is out and this is out. And this has a Jewish community. And that was the first time that I had realized that if I'm going to be applying to the United States, I actually will be limited in my residency placements based on Jewish communities. It just It never occurred to me. So it will be much easier to be in Israel. I haven't figured out what it would look like to move to the United States and navigate those questions and those challenges. So to be continued. We also didn't talk about dating while you're in Israel and you're having all these thoughts about where you might want to be, Israel, the United States, where your medical career could be better or worse, where it could be easier or harder. But there's also the possibility of meeting somebody along the way and they'll have their own perspective of maybe where they want to have a life. So I, I don't know if are you actively dating at this point? Do you date people who are Americans, Israelis, like what's that situation like given the transformation in your own life? Wow, you just you just hit the two most difficult questions that I'm currently sitting in, dating and where am I going to live, and they're very interrelated. So yes, one piece of advice that I got from somebody, and I'm taking this advice, I am dating. Their perspective is if you meet your wife, then everything else is somewhat commentary. So that's one approach. Many will most likely disagree with that approach, but I don't really have an answer to that question. And it is challenging because in order to date, it requires that you have answers to that kind of question. Even three years later, it, it shouldn't be, but it still occurs to me that, wow, I am, I am religious and I am living in Israel. And wow, like this, is, this is not a pause of life. This is actual, this is the continuation of real life. I don't know if that may make sense or if you resonate with that idea. I phrase it this way. There's a difference between buying a ticket and canceling a ticket. 
and I canceled the ticket back home. And I still, there's a still part of me that feels like I'm not really sure whether or not this is the dream that I'm waking up from or whether or not uh, home is the dream that I'm waking up from because this is the trip that just never ended. So to answer the question about dating and where am I going to end up, it's an active question that I don't have answers to at the moment. I feel like if this episode was on TV, this would be the moment where To Be Continued would show up on the screen because if I were to interview you again in three years, a lot of this would have played out. And our listeners would be wondering, huh, does he stay in Israel? Does he go back to the United States? Does he meet someone who's Israeli or American? What do they want him to do? How does he figure out how to build a life together? And those are like fascinating questions that only the future is going to be able to answer. So I think we have to hold a reservation for you in about 2025 or 2026 and have you back on for part two of the conversation. <laughs> Happily. I look forward to actually seeing the resolution in my own life. So let me ask you one last question before we close the interview. Think back to those early years sitting around the table with your family, talking about Israel, understanding the Orthodox ancestry that you uncovered. How do you reflect back now on what you thought about Judaism as a kid versus how far you've come today in the place that you're sitting right now as you're in medical school in Israel? You know, I had thought that after spending time in yeshiva that I had undergone a radical transformation, that the concepts that I now hold are fundamentally different. And very recently, I journal a lot. I love to journal. I went back to my older journals, dating back to, I think, 2016. And what was shocking to me is that I was writing the same things that I was writing after yeshiva, before yeshiva, just without the structure and the same language and the same content the same form, the same kinds of things, the same kinds of thoughts, everything seems like it has continuity. It's because of the conversations that we had growing up from the time that I, before I can remember that we had conversations, but I'm certain that we, that we would have been talking about Israel to the trip that I had in Israel with my parents to even being Jewish, but not in a Jewish school, but by contrast, feeling the uniqueness of a Jewish identity, which is expressed by virtue of not existing in a, in a sea of Jews. Everything coalesces into the moment that I came to Yeshiva as ingredients. Rather than feeling or seeming like such a radical change from who I was when I was 5, 10, 15, to who I was now, it seems to me like that was the way in which those ingredients now built the Jewish soup and the Jewish salad or whatever food you want to butcher in this analogy. But it seems less like a radical transformation than it does the logical culmination and conclusion of all the pieces of my life from the tables, from the bar mitzvahs, from just growing up. I very rarely do this where I give advice to one of my guests, but there's just one thing that I want to tell you. As you face these decisions, who you're going to meet, where you're going to live, focus those decisions on what's going to help you grow the most. Like if you have an opportunity at two medical schools and one maybe feels like a slightly better school, but you realize it's going to sacrifice your growth in Judaism, that's really important to pay attention to. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate the advice. And it's good advice. And so let me just say, Jonathan... Of course, we need you on part two to see how all this plays out. And I want to thank you for joining me today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you very much, Jeff. 
Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.